0: Okay, so this is our Simon Dong reading group. Um, we unfortunately missed a couple weeks because of some technical issues with the recording, but hopefully this week's recording will work properly. Um, so we're um, a couple sessions into the newly translated book, Imagination and Invention. Um, so we're picking up from page 16 in the translation, if anyone is following along with us. Uh, so we're just um, a couple sections into the introduction. So there's the preamble. Then the introduction, and we're um, into section B of the introduction. Uh, no, sorry, we're still in section A uh, three uh, of the subsection three of the introduction. Um, so what we've seen so far is um, so in the the uh, preamble, he gives a very quick sort of sketch of the uh, sort of cycle of the image. His his theory of the image is a, a cyclical one. So there's um, the image before the encounter with the object. Um, and we'll see more on this um, as we continue reading today. So just this is just a brief sort of recap. But there's the image before the encounter with the object, so in anticipation. Um, then there's the image in the actual encounter with the object, so in uh, perception. And then there's the image after the encounter with the object in memory. And, um, and then these sort of uh, three um, stages of the cycle uh, feed into the, the formation of a new cycle with invention. So invention produces a new object um, that uh, serves to as the basis of new images. So this is the sort of cycle that he has in mind um, when he talks about this cycle of images. Uh, but then in the introduction, he, um, what he what we've seen so far is he wants to situate the image as a, an intermediate reality between these different pairs of disjunctions. So he looks at the uh, object and subject pair uh so the image is um intermediate between object and subject in the sense that it's something that the subject doesn't have complete control over um in in its mental life or in its uh psychical life so you uh you find yourself recurring returning to images without uh sort of having control over them or you find yourself haunted by images or images sort of come to you without your um ability to control them so this is something that's uh you experience as sort of arriving from outside in that sense and he points to some ancient greek testimony um uh depiction of images as something that arrives from outside um as uh, another piece of evidence for this sort of intermediate nature of the image then he talks about the image as intermediate between concrete and abstract um so here we can think of um the, the abstract term as something like um, a description of a situation or of an object. So you would, you would um, take an object and then give a list of all the properties of the object. Uh, and this would be a, a sort of purely intellectual exercise. Uh, and then the concrete would be the, the sort of immersion in a situation in the sense. Um, so he, he points to like an emergency situation where you might find yourself acting without even really reflecting on what the correct, Uh, course of action is you just you know respond in the appropriate way without thinking about it Uh, and then the the image is sort of intermediate between these because the image has a certain valence or what he calls a weight Um, so you can um, when he he gives an example of sort of deciding what profession to follow so you're thinking of uh, say a teenager that is uh, looking at what um, course of action to pursue um, you know whether to go to university or to Enter the workforce, or you know what um, what fields to study, and the the this teenager might um, sort of evaluate the different professions or different courses of action by uh, sort of weighing these different images. So you, you think of you know if I become an engineer, you know what will my uh, what would my office look like? What would my sort of day to day life look like compared to if I um, became a doctor? What kind of images do I have of myself as a doctor? Um, or as a, I don't know, uh, a writer or whatever other sort of you know course of action that person is contemplating, they they have these images of what that life looks like and they sort of weigh these images against each other. Because and this is intermediate between concrete and abstract, because um, a purely abstract just description of you know what an engineer, um, what properties does an engineer have, uh, you can't really weigh that against the description of a, of a doctor, what properties a doctor has, you can't, you know, you know, you can make a list of those properties, but then um, to make a decision between them, you have to give some sort of valence to these properties. You have to say that, you know, th- these properties are good and these ones are bad or or these are better than these other ones. Um, and so this is what Timondo sees the role of the image as, uh, as doing. So it, you, you can only make a decision in the proper sense um, through uh, the, through the use of images, you you sort of weigh the images against each other, and you you find yourself attracted to one image versus another image that you find less attractive or or repulsive. Um, and uh, so this is how Simon Simon Don conceptualizes or or uh, pictures the decision making process. Um, and so again, this is sort of intermediate. This is this is not counting situations where you find yourself acting without making a decision or without thinking about what to do. But this is you know, situations where you actually sort of reflect and um have to choose between different courses of action uh, and then the the next one the the one that we're um going to continue reading today the next opposition is the opposition between past and future uh, and so the image is intermediate between past and future um or there are sort of past and future aspects of the image at the same time uh, in the sense that um um the image sort of uh, points back into memory. Uh, so Simon um, Simondon appeals to the work of Hippolyte Ten, who was a philosopher and psychologist of the 19th century. Um, uh, and he, so uh, Taine's theory um, of the image uh, is one in which the uh, our sensations provide, provide an image um, or produce an image. And then that image um, has a, a sort of, a sort of inherent capacity to persist or to re um, to be re, uh, revitalized or re um, imaged I guess. So you you look at the table, you see an apple on the table. You close your eyes, you still have this sort of image of the apple that persists in your memory, or that you you have this tendency to um, sort of re that that apple. Um, but uh, this tendency, uh, so this this tendency, sort of. Uh, left to its own devices would produce hallucinations. You would, you know, keep seeing that apple, no matter where you looked, um, whether you, you know, turn around and face the other direction or, or whatever. Um, but, uh, this tendency towards hallucination is countered by the stream of incoming sensations and incoming images from other, um, aspects of the situation. So when you look at the apple and then turn around and look at, um, look out the window or whatever, um, this sort of tendency to reproduce the image of the apple is countered by the, the stream of new images coming in from outside the window. Uh, so uh, in our sort of normal li- life, we, um, we don't have constant hallucinations because we have this constant stream of new images coming in to counter the this tendency towards persistence of the image. Um, but then um, there's also the image, uh, we'll see this today, so I won't go into this. Um, in a lot of detail but there's also the anticipatory aspect of the image so this is the other side the image um, the sort of future aspect of the image um, so we'll go into this uh, as we start reading today um, uh, but yeah so the image is intermediate between past and future in the sense that it has both aspects um, it sort of points back towards the past it, it um, uh, has a, a tendency to um, sort of uh, persist into memory and be uh, revivified uh, and then it also points into the future. It, it has a tendency to um, anticipate the future. So that's um, a quick sort of summary of what we've done so far in the first couple of weeks. And then uh, we can pick up from page 16 and uh, keep reading about the anticipation. So um, I'll let someone else read the first page or so um, because I've just uh, been talking a lot. So if someone else uh, would like to read that.
1: Uh, I just wanted to say real quick about the... <clears throat> the um... Past and future mediation, and, and the point about the image that, uh, like the after image of an apple that is retained when you turn away from the object, um, I wonder how this would play out on the three different registers that he introduces a little later on: uh, the instinctual, psychological, and dialectical, and if there would be sort of an equivalent, um, an equivalent sort of past-future mediation on each of those <coughs> registers uh hopefully he goes into uh what that might look like
0: yeah that's a good question so we'll we'll see that in uh i think we should get to that part today in the section b of the um introduction he's going to go through these different um sort of processes through which the image develops um uh and they each are related to different um moments of time uh so the past present and future um but uh yeah so uh, Let's hold on to that question, and um, we'll see maybe a little bit more in the introduction and then further in the text itself when we, um, when we get to that part of the text, um, and when he goes through that theory in more detail.
1: That sounds good. Um, I can read. Are we at conversely? Uh, yes. Okay.
0: Right at the top of page 16. Yeah.
1: Conversely, the image is the basis of anticipation, allowing the prefiguration of near or distant futures in symbolic attempts at solving anticipated problems. The activity of anticipation differs from the use of the image as memory in its meaning and mode of deployment. In anticipation, the reductives are less effective, and there can be an amplifying proliferation of images, comparable to what happens in La Fontaine's fable where Perrette already sees the, quote, calves, cows, hogs, chicks, unquote, until the milk jar shatters, acting as a violent reductive. The imagination of artists and writers can preform a new state of society, a new face of life, as we find in Romain d'Anticipation. To a greater extent, invention is so strongly stretched toward the future that it brings to existence outside of the subject a new mode of reality. Nonetheless, it is quite rare for imagination to be either purely reproductive or purely creative. The evocation of the past is a new life, schematized differently than the old life, polished and formalized by active memory as an engravings of historical scenes or the Epinal print celebrating the legend of the Napoleonic era. Such an evocation pre- presents ideals, vehicles for values, and projects itself into the future as an example to be followed by future generations. The memory image seeks to reincarnate and perpetuate itself. It carries a subjacent anticipation and, to a certain extent, does violence to the present in guiding it to open itself toward a future of revival, reviviscence. Anticipation, in turn, reprises old dreams and contains the echo of old aspirations already materialized in old object images, such as anticipations of human flight and travel, quote, towards celestial signs, unquote to which the legend of Icarus and the Promethean adventure correspond. For humans, the wing is as much a memory as an invention, remembrance as much as anticipation. For collective life, too, the image incorporates part of the past and can make it available for prospective work precisely to the extent that the mental images materialize themselves not only through processes of cumulative causality, but through paths of invention, creating aesthetic, prosthetic, and technical image objects. Forward planning and collective life, in corporations, even nations, corresponds to the function of projects in rational anticipations in the short, mid, and long term. There are specialists in forward planning, according to the time span, under consideration. This effort of collective rationalization of the gaze projected into the future is one of the characteristics of the world today. During the last century, appeals to the future were associated with a strong, effective, and emotional charge, colored by social ideas and inflated by hope. The dimension of the future remained mythical and contained a veiled recourse to transcendence, a haven for longing towards eternity. Only the past had become a topic of science for scientific historians. The necessities of long-term forecasts, prévision for action, have introduced rationalization to the dimension of the future and have driven out mythical thinking at least in the domains of economics and demography, time begins to be organized like space, the future is annexed to knowledge, and no longer the privileged field of the optative, of desire or volition. Nonetheless, the image recovers its density and force, which carries it towards the anticipation of the collective future, beside and beyond the perspective rationalizations, which are not true inventions, but extrapolations. So yeah, this is interesting, this this idea that the reductives um, that prevent the the persistence of the um, the image of what you were perceiving just a moment ago to uh, continue indefinitely doesn't really apply or doesn't apply as strongly to anticipations, which is how you can, I guess, get um, utopian visions or... Uh, um, yeah, I guess, uh, artistic expressions of utopia. And then it seems like the, you know, these, there are these limit cases where the image, uh, it's usually not purely past or purely future, but there's a sort of, you know, the future runs towards the past or the past is experienced now um, as the past now rather than, you know, like actually living in the Napoleonic era. And I'm curious about this reference to um, rational planning. It seems like he denigrates this kind of projection a little bit. Um, And there's a, it's, uh, I don't know, kind of like a truncation where you don't really have the same kind of uh, projection into the future. And instead you have this anticipation, which I wonder if, I wonder if he's saying that or the um, extrapolation, which may be kind of an aggrandizement of the present at the expense of the other temporal moments.
0: Yeah, I think this is a pretty um, rich passage. There's a lot of things that are going on here. Um, so maybe I'll start with the bit about anticipation. Um, so he, he's referring here, his example comes from one of uh, Aesop's tables um, where, uh, if I remember correctly, this uh, this young woman, Perrette, is a, uh, she has her, her jug of milk that she you know has just gotten from her cow, um, and she's sort of picturing you know uh, I'm going to sell this milk at the market, and then with that money I can buy some chickens, and then with those chickens I you know they're going to produce eggs, and I can sell those eggs and buy uh, a pig, and and so on and so on. So each sort of step, she she sort of pictures every step leading to another you know further step of uh, you know greater and greater wealth and and happiness. Uh, But then she, you know, knocks over the the jug or drops the jug and uh, all the milk is spilled on the floor. Right. Yeah, there's a a nice uh, image of this uh, story. Um, um, And uh, so the idea here is that each um, anticipation, each image of the of the future, um, unlike in the case of the past, where we are sort of um, where the the image is uh, of the past is countered by the stream of incoming sensations here in the case of the future, we, we have each image sort of leads on to the next one. It uh it sort of builds on itself. The ima- imaging process builds on itself and each um, stage or each um, uh, moment of this process sort of points forward to the next one and it can sort of run away with itself. And he, uh, Simone sees this same type of process as um as uh, at work in artistic creation, in particular uh, in cases of um, uh, what he calls here, roman d'anticipation. So, this would be, uh, we can think of science fiction writing as a, an, an instance of this, um, where you sort of take today's um, technology and the research that's going on today and you you sort of anticipate what it's going to look like in 100 years or 1,000 years or whatever time span. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think utopian. Um, uh projections would would fit into this model as well so you you sort of um take some sort of uh anticipation of what um progress society is going to make in the next 50 years or, or 100 years and you you um sort of feed that into itself and and see that uh you know realization of the uh of the process in in this utopian society of the future um, but then, yeah, so the next bit. So he's he's given us first the the sort of pure account account of the memory image or the image that tends to persist in memory. And then a, a sort of pure account of the anticipation image, uh, the anticipation of the future. Uh, but then he says that most images are um, are neither one nor the other. That's they have both qualities at the same time. Uh, so he talks about how. Um, when when we when we have images of the past, when people you know bring up uh, say the Roman Empire um, uh, and you know give depictions of what life in the Roman Empire was like, or what you know Julius Caesar did, or something like that, um, these images are meant to serve as, or are often used to serve as um, examples for future behavior. Uh, so we're either meant to say you know this you know uh, the Roman Empire was great and everyone should you know behave in a similar manner or we're meant to um sort of uh reject what the roman empire was like and say we should avoid what they did or or something like that we in any case we're we're always using these images for our present purposes or to um uh to modulate our future behavior so we we use the past to um affect what the future is going to be like uh, and then conversely, all our images of the future, so um Simon points to um, images of flight, for example, which for most of human history were uh, futuristic images uh, or anticipations of the future uh our images uh, images of flight uh are also tied to these uh sort of ancient myths like the the Icarus legend um where human beings uh you know um, try to copy birds and um you know use this sort of um, memory of what bird flight looks like as a as a, a guide to anticipate the future of human flight um, so in, in both cases you have images that um, sort of maybe have a predominance of one side of of anticipation or memory but at the same time uh, work to affect the other side so um, the memory an image that might be an image of the past it works to affect our anticipation of the future and then an image that is um, um, primarily, an anticipation of the future. Um, it, it sort of draws on the images from the past uh, to uh, to formulate that anticipation of the future.
2: That, that it seems to be a um, um, move between um, the mythical past, an exhortation to to improvement. Then, in the present, mythical is displaced; it's got rid of uh, in the in the in the interests of planning and like that it, it seems to me that the the image is kind of at the mercy of all these developments it, it seems has this capacity to change according to the the needs and the desires of the society or the elements society that are using it
0: yeah so that was the next bit that i was going to get to um is this collective use of the image so the first couple of paragraphs of this subsection he's talking about or he's of focusing on the individual use of the image and um, so how it how an image uh, subsists in individual memory and how it um, uh, sort of serves as an anticipation of individual futures but it, we also have these collective uses of the image um, both in in the past and in the future um, so we have uh, yeah collective uh, depictions of the past uh, in the sense of um, we have sort of um, uh, a collective memory of, you know, what things were like uh, 20 years ago or 100 years ago. We have the and often these memories are um, colored by or or in general, these memories are colored by uh, our sort of um, uh, social interests of today. So some people might think, you know, everything was much better 20 years ago and things have gone downhill since then. Um, uh, other people might think, um, you know, we've made a lot of progress in the last 20 years and things are are better than they were. Uh, and, and so the, the sort of selection of one of those images or selection of one of those ways of depicting the past uh, sort of uh, has a, a social valence as well. So it, it's, you know, it's not a neutral um, decision between those two uh, uh, images of the past. And, and you're using those images of the past to uh, bring about a certain kind of future, whether it's, you know, you might think that we should return to the way things were 20 years ago or 100 years ago. Uh, and other people might think, you know, we should build on the progress that we've made in the last 20 years. Um, uh, and and so you're you're using those images to um, try to bring about a certain kind of future. Uh, and then likewise, we have an image of the future that um, builds on our uh, understanding of the past. So you can um, you can have a, a sort of mythical understanding of the future um, uh, where you you sort of see, um, the the future as uh, a sort of open domain of um, whether it's limitless progress or um, uh, you know a constant um, increase of uh, happiness or something along those lines a a sort of utopian image of the future Um, and then simon is also pointing here to what he sees as a a relatively new development in in his time which is a a scientific um, forecasting of the future so he's thinking here, he mentions demographics and economics. So you can um, you can look at uh, trends of population growth, for example, and say that in, in 30 or 50 years, the population of this country will be X uh, based on, you know, the the trends of population growth up to this point and, you know, comparing it to other countries and so on. Um, so you can have like a, a scientific prediction. Obviously, you can't, you know, be 100 percent accurate, but you could have a, um, a scientific predict- prediction, or a prediction that is meant to be scientific, of you know what the population of a certain country will be in X number of years. Uh, so this is um, uh, a much different kind of image of the future than when you just sort of um, imagine what your you know favorite social arrangement will be in in some vague future. Uh, so you're you're using um, uh, precise calculations and collecting data and so on to uh, to produce this image of the future in the scientific sense, um, and and yeah, I think Simon sees this development um, away from myth and towards scientific prediction as having certain uh, uh, perhaps dangers to it uh, in the sense that it um, it sort of it, it can potentially close the door to alternate futures if you are only ever um, depicting the future or your only images of the future are the ones that are based on. Um, predictions uh, from current trends, or um, based on uh, you know the the tendencies that have led up to the the current moment, then you're sort of um, uh, foreclosing the possibility of some uh, uh, more uh, more complete transformation or more thoroughgoing transformation. Uh, you you can only ever um, work towards something that uh, our our society is already tending towards. You can you can uh, sort of manage the growth of population in relation to current trends, um, but you can never, you know, have a, a sort of uh, decision for an alternate um, arrangement of society or an alternate um, uh, sort of behavior of society as a whole. Uh, and, and so I think Dol sees this um, sort of closing off of myth as, on the one hand, sort of, um, yeah, a rationalization, something that y- you can, uh, uh, you know, Have a better understanding of the future on the one hand but then on the other hand um, potentially foreclosing the possibility of other options that are not necessarily already sort of pre-delineated in the current tendencies of uh the recent past and the the present so yeah it's a sort of um double-edged sword i guess uh this this sort of um rationalization of the future
2: i think he he's antagonism towards the planning the rational planning be that nothing new comes from it he talks about true they're not true inventions but explanations and and what he's saying about anticipation of the future it's kind of idea i almost ideal um, uh, ideal of the image within that process is that it creates new new society it does it creates something new something new will emerge as this this kind of scientific use of the image is kind of using it uh, for its own ends, which are planning and and you know planning and allocation of resources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Yes, I think that's right. Um, there's a um, you know the 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 idea here is that um, invention is something that is not um, sort of pre-delineated in what comes before. Um, so this could be invention in you know technical inventions or artistic creation or in this case, a, a social political invention. Um, so you, uh, this invention or this new element, this new creation is something that can't be entirely um, sort of predicted or, or pre uh, 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 prefigured in what is already existing now. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you can, if you uh had a, a knowledge of art in in such a way that you could predict what kinds of art people would be creating five or ten years from now um i think we would see this as as um a kind of uh uh, uh a lack of creativity of that art form or um uh, an absence of creativity uh in that in that domain of art um and likewise if you if you can predict um the development of society in in all its detail for five, 10, 50 years, um, we would see this as um, a kind of lack of creativity in the social political domain. Um, And and so for Simondon, um, there's, yeah, this uh, idea that creation uh, or invention requires something that can't be entirely predicted from what is currently in existence, or or you know uh, trends from the recent past. Uh, so yeah, this is the idea here of uh, an invention uh, in the social and political domain uh, that he's using or that he's working with. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next page. Um, let's see. So we can read yeah up to the section break. Um, so if someone else could read from science fiction uh, up to the section break. We have no volunteers. Um, So in that case, I can go again. Um, But yeah, hopefully um, it's nice if we can get some uh, volunteers for the next reading after that. Um, It's just good to have some variety in the uh, recording, uh, but no pressure if you uh, don't want to or don't have a mic at the moment. Okay. Uh, science fiction is one of the ways the image recovers its futural power, that is to say its prophetic function. Science fiction is the image of the real world grasped as a tendency and pushed further truly anticipated, grasped prospectively in its cognitive and emotional aspects rather than merely supposed. What is lacking for forward planning to become an actual anticipation? <clears throat> an actual anticipation is this qualitative power, this fuses that bestows on the future its true dimension of a development in process. To foresee, prévoir, is not just a matter of seeing, but of inventing and living. True forecasting, prévision, is to a certain extent a praxis, a tendency to development of an action already begun. The image as a reservoir of oriented emotion linked to a specific knowledge uh, ensures this continuity of the act faithful to its own progression. It adds to forward planning a proactive force. An old and forgotten form of the image is that of religions, particularly in the prophetic act as well as in sacrificial practices. Religions, however, are modes of being according to which past and future communicate and lend each other their force through the constituted image. What was destroyed will come back. What had died will be reborn. What was corrupted will bloom again in an immense cycle in Maccabees as one of the first followers is ready to die drained of his blood having ripped and thrown his intestines to the crowd he shouts out that god will bring him back to life and he will be reborn you can also recall the biblical saying unless the kernel of wheat falls into the earth and dies the painful consummation of the past prepares a rebirth death prepares a birth the complete image of death declares and prophesizes the call of a birth the blood of martyrs is a seed prophecy is a verbal image Uh, Sorry, prophecy as a verbal image accompanies and expresses this subterranean cycle that runs from past to future, the way fall cycles into spring. This order of third reality is neither fully perceptible nor entirely conceptualizable. The study of the image in this area must be complemented by the evocation of the myths of becoming, like the high road and low road among ancient Greek philosophers, the rhythm of conflagration and deflagration, the return of the great year, and even the notion of nemesis. Part of the reality of groups is made of images materialized as drawings, statues, monuments, garments, tools, and machines, as well as turns of phrase, formulas like proverbs that are true verbal images akin to slogans. Such images ensure the cultural continuity of groups and are constant intermediaries between their past and future. They are both vehicles of exper- experiences and knowledge, as well as specific modes of waiting. Uh, so maybe a, a translation point would be the first one. So they, they included in the translation here some of the, um, uh, a couple of, you know, the, the French word for a couple of these, uh, foresee for and forecasting, so prévoir and prévision. Um, so in French, um, with uh, in the English sort of, uh, at least in the word foresee, um, has this as well. So in French, the word prévoir includes the word voir, uh, to see. Uh, and then likewise, prévision uh, includes the word vision for or vision. Um, so forecasting and foreseeing um, as he says here, it's not a matter, it's not just a matter of seeing, but of inventing and living. So um, one sort of way of understanding forecasting that he wants to uh, uh, sort of delineate himself from, or to separate himself from, is one in which you would just sort of look at the data and see what the future is going to be like. Um, This is, this is a sort of, um, uh, a a vision or a a depiction of forecasting that he thinks is a a kind of limiting one. Um, He sees what he calls true forecasting. Um, He says it to a certain extent is a praxis, a tendency to development of an action already begun. So when you make a forecast, um, you're just by virtue of making that forecast, you're um, performing a certain action. Uh, And this is something that um, economists deal with all the time where, you know, if if you have a, an economic model that says the future um, interest rate will be X uh, and you publish your paper, um, then uh, actors in the market can read that paper and then use that knowledge of or that prediction of what the interest rate will be next year um, and make uh, economic decisions and sell or buy bonds or whatever um, based on that uh, interest rate prediction. And that Action based on that prediction might end up changing what the interest rate turns out to be. Um, so there's again this sort of cyclical nature where, um, by making a prediction, you're intervening into the social situation uh, in a way that might end up either realizing that prediction or um, uh, derealizing, or, or you know, preventing that prediction from coming true. Um, so. Prediction itself is an action uh, in general, in the sense that it affects society or the the situation that you're intervening in, in some way. Uh, And then also the specifics of the type of prediction you make. So what what data you use, what um, modeling uh, methods you use to make your prediction, like you're always making decisions. Whenever you make a prediction, you're making decisions about what information is relevant to that prediction and how you're going to use that information to to make your prediction. Uh, And so that uh, those decisions are themselves uh, a kind of action. You're you're acting in such a way as to select a certain kind of of prediction as being the the relevant one, um, as opposed to some other kind of prediction that you might have chosen. Um, And and so that decision to select certain kinds of data and not others is, again, a sort of... um, a kind of action you're intervening in a way that um, highlights or emphasizes this kind of data um, as opposed to this other kind of data uh, and so yeah so Simono sees this um, uh, foreseeing or forecasting as uh, a kind of action so it's not purely um, contemplative it's not just looking at the data and then you know seeing the results or seeing what you know, the uh, projection is going to be for next year's interest rate. You're you're actually um, uh, performing an action just by virtue of um, making a prediction, uh, and and so he sees science fiction as um, uh, sort of having this um, active nature or this active character in a way that um, more uh, scientific predictions kind of obscure or don't emphasize. Uh, so the science fiction novel or the science fiction story. Uh, sort of emphasizes this active nature, this um, character of having of uh, performing an action by making a prediction. So, um, you know, by writing a novel that depicts the future in a certain way, you might um, guide society to, uh, you know, uh, either approximate towards that future that you predict or to um, turn away from that future that you predict if it's a dystopian future. Uh, so you are intervening in the development of a society. Just by virtue of making a kind of prediction,
2: the yeah, I think the key seems to be connection between um, knowledge and emotion. That seems to be the key. Because um, in in terms of science fiction, um, it talks about he it, it says, uh, it, well, it has this. He calls it prophetic. The the notion of prophecy. This this first paragraph is to have this connection. It seems to combine the uh, the knowledge and understanding with an emotion. So, there's science fiction's image of the real world well grasped with a tendency and pushed further a truly anticipated grasp effectively in its cognitive and emotional aspects rather than merely supposed so it, it has that kind of um, anticipatory aspect of the planning but it brings it It combines that with a kind of a more emotional uh, understanding as well he says what he's lacking for forward planning becomes a an natural anticipation in this quality to power the thesis, the that Joseph you it's true dementia, I've done it in prose, anyway. Uh, so it's not just a matter of seeing, inventing and living. I think this practice is a, you know, is the thing which combines these two. So it's the image, and this is where I think he's bringing out the kind of the, uh, function of the image, because the image is a reservoir, oriented emotions linked to a specific knowledge so it has the image power rather than being i mean what what i said earlier it seems to me that the image up to this point something that is uh used it's just something we can use our advantage in different ways it wasn't clear how that use was was enabled but what he's saying now is that So he's talking about the pick of images and it seems the reason the the prophetic combines the rational with the emotional seems to be saying, well he says that the image contains that reservoir of oriented emotion, so it's oriented its emotion towards something and to a specific knowledge, that this is in a sense why they, they, can, they lend themselves to this prophetic uh, axis or this prophetic uh, yeah, pro, well perhaps let's use another word instead of that, but yeah it so adds to planning a proactive it's not only just planning, but it has this you notion, know, activity in advance as well, I can think a better way of saying that
0: yeah, this uh, notion of prophecy is an interesting one, or the, the prophetic function of the image, and, and that's what he, he sort of goes into um, in a bit more detail in the next couple of, of paragraphs here. Uh, he talks about the prophetic role of images in religion, um, and, and so he's, he's sort of comparing um, the prophetic role of images in science fiction or our sort of um, mythological relation to the future um, with the um, prophetic role of uh, or the, the role of prophecy in religion, um, and and so um, these are images uh, that he talks about in relation to birth and death, uh, in particular. Um, so this this image of death as a, a precursor to a rebirth, or um, you know this uh, sort of prophecy that um, what seems to be lost in today's action, um, you know, or what seems to be a failed action will sort of in the future. It, it lays the seeds for something that, um, that, uh, uh, will succeed in the future. Um, so, uh, I mean, and of course there, there are various, um, different, um, ways of understanding this kind of cycle of birth and rebirth. So, um, uh, in, in the case of the the biblical text that he's pointing to, he, it's a, a resurrection of the dead, which is a, a sort of one-time event, but he also talks about ancient Greek notions of, uh, the great year, um, and and so we see this in Heraclitus, for example, um, uh, this notion that there's a sort of cosmic cycle of the universe. After you know many thousands of years, um, everything sort of returns to how it was uh, at the outset and um, goes through the whole cycle of creation again. Um, so there's this kind of constant circulation of uh, uh, of entities, um, and and so these images of um, uh of these prophetic images or this prophetic use of images kind of point towards a future um that will sort of re um that will justify the suffering of the past and the present um so you know the death of uh the martyrs today will lead to um uh resurrection in the future or plants the seed for resurrection in the future or something along those lines um so yeah this um, is obviously a very powerful uh, emotional valence of an image um, that uh, we can sort of lose sight of when we focus only on this um, rational cognitive prediction of the future. Uh, uh, so we, if we only ever um, experience the future or anticipate the future in terms of rational predictions of what the population is going to be like uh, or you know, some other um, sort of demographic uh, prediction of the future, then we never um, experience this uh, this anticipation of the future in this prophetic mode or this um, much more emotionally powerful mode of uh, of experiencing the future and we never um, have this uh, uh, much stronger relation to the future that might lead us to you know make sacrifices in the present f- for the sake of the future or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, this reference to the religions at the end of that section. um, One thing I want to just think about as we go through this book is what is the relationship between, because in a couple of places, he emphasizes the cyclical nature of um, the image or associates the image with cycles. And yet I think invention is supposed to be something that um, that breaks out of an old cycle or gives rise to a new series of cycles. And so, um, the relation between like th- these, the idea of the great year or something like the Eleusinian mysteries, um, these seem to be cycles that sort of return to where they departed from. And I'm interested to see how imagination as, you know, generative of the new plays into that.
0: Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great point. Um, this is something that we've uh, talked about, uh, I think in our discussion of uh, individuation is, is what exactly is the relationship between you and old in invention or in creation? Um, because if you think of invention as something like a hundred percent novel that never has no relation whatsoever with what came before, then um, you're, it's not even really an invention. It's just something random. It's a random event, you know, an asteroid striking the earth or something like that is a, is, is your sort of, uh, paradigm of a, of a, an invention, which seems sort of uh, paradoxical and not really what we mean by an invention. Um, when we when we think about invention and creativity, we think of sort of building on what came before and using what came before in a new way, a way that other people didn't think of or didn't um, have the means to realize, or something along those lines. As opposed to something that is has no relation whatsoever to what came before. Um, so there there has to be some sort of um, relationship between the novelty and the conservation of an invention uh to to make it something in, to make it into something that's a real invention and not just a you know a, a sort of random occurrence that has no connection to what came before um so yeah it's uh it is an interesting question um that i don't think simon do ever sort of directly addresses but there's a lot of points in his work that uh that sort of connects to this question
2: i think it seems to be the religious is another form of another form of image. He says it's an old and forgotten form of image. This and he said, it's based on, from what he's saying. It seems he he means by that it's cyclical. It's based on these cycles of birth and death, of uh, decay and renewal, etc., etc. So is what he. Another. T- I would say it's another type of image. He says the third reality. I'm imagining it's. He means by that it's another type of image. I think this the area it seems to be this seems to be in is a kind of the a kind of the mysterious because it, it's it's not uh, fully perceptible nor entirely conceptual. it's neither neither open to any either kind of uh, immediate under, understanding as an image or then object to um Alice's thought or actually
0: yeah i think it's uh I'm not sure it's a new kind of image, as so much as a a new use of an image or a, a different um, way of experiencing images. Um, so that um, there's um, there's a kind of, um, yeah, you can use a, a certain image of uh, death and rebirth, for example, in a religious way. Um so it's a it's a kind of use of an image as um, uh, as a prophecy, as um, as a, an orientation for future action. Um, in a way that is not sort of based on a, a cognitive appreciation of the future. So, when you have a religious relation or a prophetic relation to the future, you're not sort of looking at the past and present and trying to come up with an account of what the future is going to be like based on that um, evaluation, this cognitive evaluation of the past and, and present. You instead have this um, affective or emotional relation to the future and you use that to bring about a certain kind of future so you you um you uh have this valorization of either you know this is a future that we're trying to create or, or this is a, a future that we're trying to avoid um that sort of structures your action to to bring about the kind of future that you're trying to bring about um um so this is a, a certain use of the image to um yeah to bring about a certain kind of future, um, and it has this uh, very strong uh, emotional resonance in the present in a way that um, a rational or cognitive prediction of the future doesn't necessarily have.
2: Do you think the religious has that as that function? Because we see that the science, that's more to do with the science fiction use of images, where the religious doesn't have that element um, within it.
0: I think in, so in the case of the Maccabees um, example that he's talking about here, so partly um, uh, and, and I don't really know the the Maccabee story that well, but um, the this um, um, you know martyr for the the Maccabean revolts, you know in his sort of um faith that he's going to be resurrected he is um, or this um, prophetic uh, call for um, resurrection is also at the same time an evocation of um, resistance in the crowd. So the the crowd should resist um, the Roman rule over um, Judea and should, um, uh, you know, return to the religious practices of of their ancestors and so on. Um, And so um, this use, uh, this prophetic use of the image um, has this uh, emotional resonance in the present, but that resonance is directed towards a transformation of action in the future so um and then religion um in general has to do with uh you know any any sort of religious uh revival or um rebirth imagery uh always has to do with a a transformation of the future as well so people that um uh you know undergo a conversion for example they um they might you know get baptized or um you know, undergo some sort of symbolic rebirth, uh, and this symbolic rebirth is the, supposed to be the start of a new life. Uh, you you live differently than you did before you converted or before you underwent your baptism or uh, whatever ceremony, um, and it's that new life that comes after that is sort of um, uh, motivated or is uh, uh, gets its energy from uh, from this affective charge or this emotional charge of the present of the future in the present. So it's, it's because I have faith that I'm going to be resurrected, for example, that I might, um, you know, choose to live in a certain way and, uh, you know, follow certain, uh, tenets and, and, uh, and so on. Um, so if you, um, yeah, it's, it's through this uh, prophetic relation to the future that you, um, gain the, desire and and power to um live your life in a certain way th- in the future uh so this this is what i think simon sees as a uh, characteristic of this prophetic mode whether it's in in the case of religious you know in a proper sense religious practices but also in the case of science fiction
2: the, i don't know i think the science fiction seems to be underlaid by a kind of rest, whereas the religious seems to be delayed by a cycle of death and death not forward moving it's 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 cyclical you know it has this notion as he says it, where is it from past to future the way falls cycles to spring so it has this kind of more circular nature in it?
0: yeah i think um i mean these are again so um the religious mode of uh or the religious um use of prophecy is not identical to the uh science fiction use of prophecy or the you know prophetic nature of science fiction is not identical to the prophetic nature of religion. So of course there are differences in terms of how they are manifested. Um, but, uh, I think the, this prophetic nature, this use of the future, um, this sort of affective resonance of the future in the present to transform the future. I I think this, um, sort of, uh, process or this cycle, um, within, the prophetic use of the image is is common to um both the religious use of the image and the science fiction use of the image um for simondon i think that's how we're meant to understand this uh uh these couple paragraphs here
1: i can start the next section if we want to move on
0: yeah sure um so yeah let's read uh yeah about a page yeah we we have uh, a couple of shorter paragraphs
1: okay uh, section B, the hypothesis of the genetic dynamism of the image, phases and levels. Studies of ontogenesis have shown that growth processes do not cover the organs and functional systems of a living being in a uniform way. There are lags in each partial growth relative to the others, and there are different speeds, especially among complex organisms, so much so that it is difficult to establish the exact moment at which an organism reaches its complete adult stage. Moreover, growth and development display stages and cycles separated by periods of transition in which a de-differentiation is followed by a reorganization. Such processes are very clear in the metamorphoses of some living species, yet they also take place in the organic development and the ontogenesis of human behavior. Could we not then posit that mental images are like structural and functional subsets of this organized activity that is psychic activity? The subsets would thus possess a genetic dynamism, and dynamism analogous to that of an organ or a system of organs, organs Jesus, on a trajectory of growth. And we could essentially distinguish three stages. First, that of pure and spontaneous growth prior to the experience of the object to which a functional activity is pre adapted. This would be, in the image, the equivalent to the embryonic stages of organic growth. Each image as an embryo of motor and perceptual activity develops itself for itself here as a non-controlled anticipation through a reference to the experience of the milieu and to a free state, which is to say without strict correlation to other subsets of psychic activity. It displays pre-adaptations, but not adaptations. The image then becomes a mode of receiving a uh, information coming from the milieu and a source of response schemas to these stimuli. In perceptual motor experience, images become effectively and directly functional. They organize and stabilize themselves in internally correlated groups according to the dimensions of the relationship between the organism and the milieu. Finally, after this stage of interaction with the milieu, corresponding to a learning process, an apprentissage, an effective emotional repercussion completes the organization of images according to a systematic model of linkages, evocations, and communications. A veritable mental world is constituted with regions, domains, qualitative key points through which the subject commands an analog of the exterior exterior milieu, one that has its own constraints, its own topology, its complex modalities of access. In other words, images would undergo successive mutations that would modify their mutual relations by making them pass from the status of primitive mutual independence to a phase of interdependence at the moment the object is encountered, to a final state of systematic and necessitating linkage in which primitively kinetic energies have become tensions within a system. Invention could then be considered as a shift in the organization of the system of adult images, returning mental activity to a new state of free images through a change of level, thus allowing a genesis to start again. Invention would be the rebirth of the cycle of images, one that permits an approach to the milieu with new anticipations from which adaptations will emerge that were not possible for primitive anticipations, and then a new internal and symbolic systematization. In other words, invention operates a change of level. It marks the end of a cycle and the beginning of another, each each comprising three phases, anticipation, experience, and systematization. So this is uh this is interesting in light of the last thing that we read from individuation volume 2 where he also talks about um these cycles of uh differentiation de-differentiation and reorganization in human development um and the idea here seems to be that along with this um uh, this sort of cyclical, but also developmental, um, uh, process in human development. There's a subset, uh, a structural and functional subset that is the psychic activity, which includes the genesis of images, which has its own cycle, um, and its own moments of de-differentiation, which I guess correspond to invention, which allows a new cycle to begin. So... Yeah, I think someone said this um, in one of the earlier sessions, but maybe it's more of a like a, or maybe it was at the end of the last book, but it's more of like a, a spiral development than a circle that always returns to
0: the same point. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say about the spiral. Um, yeah, so uh, he's pointing back here, that first paragraph here, he's pointing back to some of the, what he's discussed in um, uh form information potentials in, in that we that was the last text that we read in individuation volume two um so in that text he looks at some uh results from developmental psychology which shows that human infants for example they um go through a series of stages in in terms of um their motor activity so their um way of getting around the world so an infant uh, at one stage at a certain age um, will crawl on all fours uh, and is quite um, successful. Anyone who's a parent will uh, recognize this, that infants, you know, manage to get themselves into all kinds of trouble by crawling around and, you know, um, uh, are, are very good at uh, getting around the world by crawling. Um, um, but then at a certain stage, that, that crawling behavior sort of breaks down and they, they start to um, uh, sort of uh, pick up their... their um, arms off the ground and they you know, you know are sort of awkward and can't really um get around as well as they did before and then after a while they start to walk on two legs um and then they uh they can get around on two legs um just as well as they did before crawling on all fours uh so the their behavior um uh sort of has this well differentiated or this well um adapted uh state uh, and then it undergoes the state of de-differentiation, de- so it becomes awkward and maladapted to the environment, uh, and then it, um, it re-differentiates and re to the environment in a new uh, a new level of adaptation or a new structure in the bipedal locomotion. Um, and Simone sees this as being characteristic of um, the development of uh, uh, human behavior in general, that we go through these cycles of adaptation and then de-adaptation and then readaptation at a new level um, and and then the proposal here in uh, 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 imagination and invention is that we treat the development of images as if it was the development of, uh, of an organism uh, in the same way. So an image is a, it's as if the image were a kind of organism within our mental life um, and then each image or each set of images Will undergo a similar kind of development um, through cycles of adaptation, uh, deadaptation, or dedifferentiation, and uh, and then readaptation at a higher level. Um, so yeah, each of these images or each of these sets of images will undergo this sort of spiraling development, where it um, it uh, continues to go through these cycles, and then each cycle takes place at a, a higher level uh, than the preceding one, uh, and so. Um, again this this first bit is a, a sort of summary or or preview of the more detailed um, explanation that he's going to go through in the rest of this section. Uh, but the idea is that we have um, we start with an anticipatory image um, that uh, so we have an image before the encounter with the object and and this image has to do with uh, um, sort of um uh, so he calls this a priori in the sense that it's um, images that are before the contact with the object. And, and he connects this with uh, instinctive tendencies that are discovered by ethology. Uh, we'll see this in a little bit. Um, and then there's the image in the encounter with the object. Uh, so this, this image um, has to do with adaptation of, um, uh, between the image and the object. So you have a, a well-adapted Perceptual apparatus, insofar as your images depict the world in the way that it actually is, um, and then uh, after the encounter with the image, the um, or sorry, after the encounter with the object, the the image has this memory quality, um, and uh, and then uh, in that memory state, it undergoes relations with other images. So you, uh, in a process of learning, for example, you. Um, you know, the first time that a child sees a dog, for example, they, they have, um, some sort of reaction to this dog. Um, but then afterwards they sort of grasp the, the concept of a dog. They, they might compare multiple experiences of, um, seeing dogs and then they learn what a dog is in general. Um, and so this learning process involves connecting, uh, multiple different images with each other and, uh, integrating them with each other. Uh, but then, um, the invention stage or the 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 invention step is a sort of um uh kicking the cycle up into an uh, a higher gear or moving it to a higher level uh where you restart the cycle with these um anticipations that are not connected to each other and then you progressively tie them together um in into um more coherent uh, uh connections or more coherent structures of images uh so each of these um cycles operates uh, at a certain level and then it, um, it gets uh, pushed up to a higher level through a, a process of invention.
2: It's, it's very interesting this because it, it seems to be see complex. It seems to be kind of structural and it's this structure um, which the image is something that um, kind of development and it goes to development on a level, and then it goes up to another level, and the process begins again. A, a really interesting image uh, idea, I think. Obviously, it's familiar with Simondon, from my understanding of Simondon, is that uh, it kind of talks about uh, systems, uh, signals, and sign signal. I mean, this is from, uh, but this signal sign systems operate in a certain way. This kind of cyclical and going up to different levels the energy levels and int- i think intensive systems that's the word i'm kind of struggling to remember to think about i don't know if it's if it creates different levels of intensity but it's this this sort of develop as you say it's this development of an of an or- organism it's early to spontaneous growth and interactions and then it takes on a it becomes a world in itself the process starts again it's really it's kind of a complex of uh i don't know um robotic thinking religious thinking it's quite strange the kind of the uh the things that are being combined within this uh within this this uh, analysis i would say
0: yeah i think one of the things that's so interesting and and well sometimes difficult about Simon Dom, but um that makes him such a rewarding uh author to to go through is the way that he makes these connections between domains that you you know would not think are connected to each other so you know Biblical prophecy writing uh and um cybernetics you know just sort of uh a priori don't seem to have anything to do with each other um but he is now you know making connections between them and and um allowing us to um see how we can uh uh sort of get something out of this um connection between the two uh and so I think this is also a sort of um an example of um the process um um um, the process that he's descri- describing here. So we, we start with maybe a certain understanding, a set of images about what, you know, biblical prophecy uh, looks like um, or consists in. Um, and then we have um, another set of images about cybernetics uh, and um, information, uh, information theory and signal processing and so on. We have images uh, related to, to that field um, and they're sort of isolated from each other. They, they just have their own, sort of consistency and they have no connection with each other. And then in our process of learning through reading Simone Doe's work, we come to make connections between them. We integrate those two fields. Um, and then uh, through that integration, we can um, perform an act of invention or Simone Doe sort of guides us to perform an act of invention to grasp um, a higher level of uh, uh, intellectual life, I guess, um, to, to sort of ascend to this higher level of intellectual life through um you know by passing through this integration um so yeah it's it's uh he's he's sort of doing what he's describing for us or he's he's pushing us to do what he's describing here which i think is a, a kind of neat um uh sort of performative structure of his text okay so let's go on to the next page um do we have any volunteers to read um uh the next page or so
3: i can read uh what well, where do we...
0: Uh, so we're on page 19, near the bottom, uh, each phase of the genesis.
3: Okay. Um, and how long paragraphs?
0: Uh, yeah, about a page. Um, where does that get us to? Um, yeah, let's go to the, the top of 21, the, the first paragraph uh, on 21.
3: Each phase of the genesis be placed into a dominant active before they expand by them. the image as anticipation is rich in an endogenous motor element. It is connected to the hereditary coordinations of movement revealed by eth- ethological studies. Its intensity may thus vary according to levels of motivation up to a hallucinatory mode of appearance and action, as in the case of Leerlauf-free action, or vacuum activities in ethology. In this sense, we can speak of a priori images and the predominance of primary motor elements in this activity to be associated with the fact that in species development, and perhaps individual development too, Motorici- motoricity precedes sensoriality as a long term anticipation of being. In the direct relation with the milieu, the image provides the local activity that is a mode of reception of incident information. This short term anticipation, constantly adapted and readapted to the situation, adjusted to the structure of objects in the form of a pre perceptual or inter perceptual schema, is marked by the predominance of cognitive content. By analogy and an extension of the vocabulary, we might speak of a-presenti images, which may in some cases be manifested in a separate state in the form of errors or illusions, but which normally pass unperceived since they are at the surface of perceptual activity. After perception, the affective emotional effect, or resonance, takes priority. The image is then the remarkable point that is preserved when the situation no longer exists. We might speak of a memory in this a posteriori image, and indeed the category of memory images, with our capacity to revive situations from evocations of the image, is not new in psychology. But we should note that not all memories are images. A memory is a true a posteriori image when it appears as an imprinting, pregnant, and with an intensity that endows it with an organizing power. This particular memory is a remarkable point that holds a meaning for a topology of the system of past experience in the process of organizing itself. It is a source of attitude reactivation, It has qualitative power and presents itself as a sample of a situation rather than as a memory of an experience. Um, Through this image that preserves an objective density and contains a reference to the alterity of experienced reality, the subject preserves and retains in himself an analogon of external reality, one that may materialize itself as a caricature, a devotional image, or a work of art. The emotional density and the sheaf of qualitative nuance incorporated in this particular memory constitutes a charge a state of the system that conserves and condenses at once, both the spontaneous endogenous movement of long-term anticipation of the a priori image and the heterogeneous plurality of the perceived, perceived brought by experience. This synthesis in equal proportions of endogenous motor energy and information coming from the milieu is a concrete symbol of the relation between subject and milieu. This particular mix represents a point of insertion of mental activity in the milieu It condenses a situation, preserves it with its network of forces and tendencies, and allows that situation to be recreated. In this sense, the world of memory images produces a true mental universe, or rather constitutes the terminals uh, born born, and the wiring voyages of a mental universe that is polarized, polarize, and under tension tendu. And I apologize for my, especially my French pronunciation.
0: Yeah, no worries about the French. That's uh, obviously not uh, you're not expected to master the French pronunciation. Um, um, yeah, so here he's talking about, um, so again, he's going through this cycle of the image in more detail. So he, he gave in the last bit that we just read before, he gives um, um, a sort of condensed uh, account of this cycle in one sort of one go. Uh, and then he goes through each of the moments of this cycle. So the first one is the anticipation uh, and so he he um, uh, ties this with uh, this ethological concept of the vacuum activity. Um, so ethology is the study of animal behavior, and um, there. Uh, so and, and he's he's thinking here primarily of uh, Konrad Lorenz, I believe, um, um, who was uh, uh, a famous uh, you know one of the founders of the field of ethology in the twentieth century, um, and he um, gave this account of. Um, animals that perform so there there are certain behaviors that animals are are, that are specific to um uh, a particular animal species they you know they will um drink water in a certain way or uh, catch their prey in a certain way or perform certain um uh sort of mating rituals and so on um uh and but sometimes these activities the animals will actually perform the same activity in the absence of the object on which the activity is based so um He talks about uh, I think it was starlings that um, sort of that their normal uh, or one of their normal foods is insects that are flying around. So they sort of snap at insects from out of the air. Um, But even in the absence of insects, when when their hunger is strong enough, they will actually start snapping at the air as if there were insects there. Um, So they perform um, they perform their actions uh, without having the object present. Uh, and this is what a vacuum activity is. Um, and so Simonmoneau is is taking this as um, um, a sort of instance of this anticipatory role of the image. So it's as if um, the starling is is sort of hallucinating insects uh, that that are surrounding it and um, uh, you know uh, snapping at these hallucinated insects um, uh, and other sort of instances of uh, um, animals that perform these vacuum activities. That it's as if they're hallucinating an image um, uh, and um, acting in relation to this uh, hallucinated image. So um, this is the, the sort of anticipatory phase of the image. It's an image that has no connection to the rest of the mental life of the organism. Um, and then the the second phase is when um, the, uh, the image... Um, is connected to the milieu in uh, a more is in an adaptive sense. So where, uh, so here the animal, whether it's a human or some other animal will, um, not just have this sort of, uh, direct link between a certain behavior and a hallucinated image, but instead will have this sort of, um, feedback loop between the environment and the behavior. So, uh, like in the, in the case of, um, um, in the case of uh, uh, the starling for, or any other animal, uh, they have a certain prey object. So they perceive the prey object, they might um, uh, have certain behavior to approach the prey. Um, they uh, have a certain type of behavior to um, uh, capture the prey, to, to eat the prey and so on. Each of the steps of the whole process of uh, capturing and eating prey has a, a certain types of behavior that um are guided by the perception so the image of the uh the insect um guides the behavior and then that guided behavior produces a new image of the insect from closer or you know in in the right posture or whatever um um, yeah and so there's um this sort of cycling of uh, between image and behavior to bring about um the desired goal state of whether it's eating the the uh, the prey object or you know mating with the partner or whatever. Um, uh, so yeah, we have this sort of constant adaptation of the image to the um, object outside of, a, uh, of the organism. Uh, and so Simon Dome calls the first set of these uh, empty images, these uh, hallucinated images. Um, he calls this a priori because they're um, prior to the contact with the object, these images appear um, before um, any sort of contact with the object. Uh, and then these images that are, are in relation to the milieu that, um, are, uh, adapted to the environment. Uh, he calls these a presenti. So this is a, a term that we've seen in, in individuation volume one, um, that Simondon Dome, uh, introduces this term a presenti to, um, um, sort of fit between the terms a priori and a posteriori. Um, so yeah, we have these a presenti images that, um, present uh, an adaptation to the environment Uh, and then the the next stage is the um uh, a posteriori image so this is the image after the um the uh, encounter with the object um and um this image uh has an affective power um and so um it serves, so he says, not every memory is an image in this sense. Um, so there's, uh, you know, learning that happens. Um, the image is incorporated into our um, sort of future behavior. Uh, so an animal that encounters uh, some situation for the first time, say fire, the animal encounters fire for the first time, they may not have any um, understanding of what it is, but then they, if they get too close, they will experience pain. Uh, And then in future, they will avoid fire. Um, So um, this uh, situation brings about an affective response, the the pain of the approach to fire. um, And the future situation, whenever this animal sees fire from a distance, it will have a sort of resonance of that uh, past experience and will avoid the fire in the future. So there's a a learning process of uh, uh, how this image gets incorporated into the future behavior of the organism. Uh, And um, um, this, so Simono sees this as um, uh, sort of this process as as being uh, taking place in human behavior as well. Um, When we see things like, um, um, he talks about caricatures or devotional images or works of art. So these types of images um, are not uh, sort of photographic depictions of a situation, um, even, even what we think of as realistic art is meant to um, produce a certain kind of uh, response in a human uh, um, audience. It's not uh, just a pure depiction. Uh, no one paints a realistic painting just to um, depict, uh, you know, what you know, some random human beings in a particular room uh, were doing at a certain time. You, you select uh, you know, the, the person that you want to depict and the situation in which you depict them, they're, they're selected to produce a certain kind of reaction in a human audience. Um, so yeah, so each of these images uh, sort of highlights particular aspects of reality or emphasizes some aspects while um, hiding others or, or uh, uh, sort of depicts aspects of reality in a particular way to bring about a certain kind of emotional reaction in a human subject who, uh, learns from that experience and then, um, uh, you know, has their behavior modified in future. Um, so it, that experience of encountering even a, a, sort of crude caricature of a person, you know, it might make you see that person in a different way in the future. You, you sort of realize, yeah, this person does have a big nose or whatever, um, that you didn't, uh, uh, see before this caricature. Um, uh, so you, um, yeah your your mental life is transformed by passing through the the phase of um, encountering this uh, caricature um, and uh, and so we have this uh, affective response through uh, through which we learn and uh, transform our mental life.
1: The reference to feedback in the second moment this might be a stretch, but um, I wonder if the Critique of of um, cybernetics in individuation, Volume One, which, as I understand it, is basically that you can't understand um, you can't understand the human being, or I guess information in the broader sense in which Simondon wants to understand it uh, through feedback loops. Um, that point gives, that he makes um, about how. Strong image. contra Aristotle this thing as a the, oh a uh, tense. Hi Derek, structure.
2: I was. It's
0: got. In the of talking? And, yeah, Derek. Sorry, can you
1: uh,
2: polarization? Sorry, tension. Derek. So can you hear us? A strong image. I would. Derek end, uh, kind of brings all that thinking together.
0: Yeah, sorry, Derek. Uh, I'm going to mute you for a minute here because it sounds like you can't hear us. Um. Uh. I think uh, there's a connection issue. Um. Yeah, sorry, Angus, go ahead.
1: Uh, yeah. Um I was just gonna say I wonder if the uh can you not hear me? If the critique of the um oh
2: Hear me?
1: I can still I can still hear Derek. I don't know if uh, maybe you just muted him uh personally. No. Hey, oh hear me? Really? Okay. Um
0: hmm. uh, oh, yeah, here we go. Sorry, I have to server mute him. Just a sec.
1: Uh yeah, so the okay, the critique of Feedback in volume one, I wonder if this is related to the critique of the anticipatory um, demographics and economics planning that we saw in the last section uh, with the um, potential for reorientation, which I think is what Simon Don thinks is missing from the um, uh, sort of self-directed reorientation that Simon Don thinks is missing from the uh, understanding the human individual in terms of feedback um, with that, that potential being associated with the futural moment of, of um, the image and imagination.
0: I think, um, hmm, I think there's, for Simon Dahl, there's definitely a role of feedback in um, bringing about this, um, 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 this sort of capacity of the future to transform the present effectively. Um, So we, we need feedback um, to, uh, to have this relation to the environment, uh, in this appresenti relation to the environment. We need to have feedback from the environment, um, to, um, to, um, you know, have this connection to the environment, but, um, the, um, uh, it, it's, we need something aside from pure feedback. Um, um, we need, um, yeah, this sort of, productive role of the future, this, what he calls here, the prophetic um, um, power uh, or prophetic use of the image um, to be able to uh, sort of um, get beyond just an insertion into the environment or a pure adaptation. Um, uh, and he, he um, I forget which text it was, um, where he, he talks about um, how, or he, he criticizes certain approaches to psychology for emphasizing adaptation Uh, over to overemphasizing adaptation. So um, a social reality, uh, so you adapt to social reality just by, you know, getting a a good job and being a good neighbor and so on, like all these sort of uh, typical things that, um, uh, uh, you know, you um, consider to be part of what uh, adaptation to social reality is, but, you know, that social reality might not be a good social reality, or it might be one that could be improved in certain ways. um, And it might be, better uh sort of in the lo- long run or for society as a whole it might be better to um um to have um uh malad- maladaptation um at a certain stage so that that society can be transformed uh in the future um so yeah i think the feedback bit is part of how we you know actually connect with an environment and, and um, uh, have a um a relation to that environment but at the same time we need to have something that is not purely feedback and that sort of um might be in, in some respects a maladaptation um to be able to uh uh sort of transform that reality and, and not just have a pure adaptation to that reality okay yeah so it sounds like derek is back so um, i'm going to unmute you derek Thanks, you sorry about you uh, make your comment no, all
2: i all i was saying earlier was um the end the final bit of this section we re, reading. It seems to be a very strong image, a, um, I might call this an intensive system. He talks about terminals wiring, a, a polarization and tension within, within this whole structure.
0: Yeah, he's uh, he's using, again, we've, um, this is something we've, we've talked about a couple of times, about his use of images in this text, which, you know, is appropriate because it's a text about images, but he, the image that he's using here comes from uh, electrical engineering. Um, so he's depicting, um, he's depicting uh, the sort of mental life of an organism or the mental universe is the term that he uses here to um, as as if it were, um, uh, yeah, an electrical system that has different um, uh, connections between different um, uh, components, you know, wiring uh, from one piece to another. Um, uh, And then, yeah, tension here. um, I think I mentioned this, uh, last time or, or a previous session, uh, the French word tension means, uh, also it can mean tension in English, but also voltage. Uh, so it's, again, an electrical term. Um, so he, uh, he's describing mental life as if it's, um, a kind of electrical um, circuit or electrical system. Uh, but, um, it's precisely because, um, mental life. So it's in this sort of cycle electrical or uh, mental life tends to become, uh, sort of more connected. And so if your wiring diagram gets more and more connections between different elements of your um, uh, uh, circuit. Um, But then there's this uh, invention phase, which is not really a phase of the cycle. It's a sort of um, uh, extra cyclical phase, I guess, um, where the wiring diagram gets scrambled again. And and then at a a new level of reality, you have to sort of rewire your, your diagram again and um, form a new circuit. So you have this constant cycling between um, uh, uh, a sort of um, uh, isolated set of components, uh, and then you sort of wire them together and produce this complicated wiring diagram, and then you sort of scramble everything again, um, but at a new level, uh, and then you go through the, the same cycle again. Um, so that's, that's sort of the image that he has in mind here of, of this um, electrical engineering sort of... Process, But then there's always this invention phase, which is not um, sort of uh, captured in that image of the of the electrical um, engineering cycle. OK, uh, so let's go on to the next uh, page. Um, so we're at uh, page 21 at this universe, if someone else would like to read from there. Uh, OK, so no volunteers. Um, yeah, I can read again. Uh, no worries. Okay. This universe, in which movements linked to exogenous structures have become forces and energies in a state of suspension in the mode of potentiality, is an analogical organization of symbols. When the subject is saturated, unable to receive new experiences, he must modify his structure to find larger, more powerful dimensions of organization able to surmount the felt incompatibilities. When invention, at a change of level, is unable to take place and develop a new cycle, the failure of the structural change of the symbolic universe manifests itself in pathological modalities. Such a general hypothesis of the genesis of images might lead to a dialectical interpretation. The a apost- <clears throat> posteriori image has the characteristics of a synthesis, but the dialectical aspect of the relations between organism and milieu is only a partial aspect of the process of genesis. The theedic phase, anterior to experience, translates the spontaneity of the organism and the preexistence of an anticipating activity deployed prior to experience. Experience is already an antithetical phase corresponding to the tightest relationship between organism and milieu. In other words, one might think that a deeper study of the relations between organism and milieu might help us understand the origin of the dialectical schema and consequently lead to situating it, to relativizing it, rather than preserving it as the unconditional principle of the intelligibility of becoming. If the idea of dialectical evolution can be conserved, it is above all as an affirmation of a progressive succession of modes of organization of images across different phases, such modes of organization being so many, quote, logics capable of providing anchor points for reflective and systematizing thought. If invention can affect a change of level, we need to define the main levels at which the dynamic genesis of images might be located. The primary level might be called biological or vital. It implies the participation of the entire organism as a means of actualization, and it engages that organism in situations through categories like the relation to predator, to prey, or to partner. Anticipation is, in this sense, the pre-existence of hereditary coordinations of instinctual action, like aggression or flight, that imply the participation of the organism as a whole. Perceptual experience is directed by innate forms or patterns, grasping the corresponding sense of situations according to the primary modes of danger, feeding, partnering, or do- and domination or submission in social species. Resonance consists mainly of intensive apprenticeships, limited, however, to typical situations, such as those from the phenomenon of imprinting, mm-hmm. pregung, studied by ethologists. The secondary level, which may be called psychological, though the term is far from satisfactory, Involves a more specialized participation of the nervous system in the local activity producing images. Instead of directly engaging the whole organism in each situational relation with the milieu, it develops a mental analog of this primary relation. Anticipation, rather than awaking instinctual activity, manifests itself in the form of motivation and conscious anticipation, of desire, of felt needs, of action plans, and through a succession of images that prepare the encounter with the object. In experience, the local activity producing images no longer functions as a mode of reception. Of primary categories of existence, but of the recognition and analysis of the object, of the perception of its present state, of the appreciation of variations and differences, and of the high differential processing of incident signals. The image functions here as an instrument of adaptation to the object. It presupposes that there is an object and not just a situation. After experience, the properly psychical image is the affective emotional symbol of the object, comprising the association of a representative trait with the modality of reaction in the subject. For instance, after a conversation, the images of a few words remain. A typical expression with a specific intonation by the interlocutor joins to a specific affective emotional valence. This memorial complex serves as a reference for the organization of the representation of the milieu with its valences in the subject. Right, so so he's given us, so we have one sort of um, tripartite schema that we've just seen uh, in the previous readings. Um, So we have um, the a, po- a priori um, relation or the image before the encounter with the object. We have a, a, a presenti, the uh, image in relation with an object. Uh, and then we have the a posteriori uh, image um, after the encounter with the object. So that's the one sort of tripartite schema that we've gone through. Uh, and then now he's going to give us another tripartite schema um, between um uh, so first, the biological level. Uh, so the, 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 this schema has to do with um, levels at which the invention happens. So we can think of um, um, sort of um, cycles of the first uh, tripartite schema um, going through the each stage of the second tripartite schema. So you have like A1, A2, A3, B1, B2, B3, C1, C2, C3. Uh, that's sort of how we can think of these two schemas uh, interacting with each other. Um, so the, fir- the, the first level of this second schema is the bio- what he calls the biological or vital level. Um, so um, here we have, uh, so he says it's, it implies the uh, participation of the entire organism. Uh, so here he's thinking of behaviors of the whole organism, uh, where, so you have responses like flight or um, predation, or mating or something like that, where the whole organism is involved in the, the behavior. Uh, and then the second level he calls the psychological, um, where uh, and he, he says this term is far from satisfactory. So I'm not sure exactly what he um, uh, thinks is not satisfactory about this term. But the idea is that rather than a, a response of the whole organism to a situation, you instead have uh, a relation to an object um, um, uh, yeah, so there's a, a sort of mental um, uh, response to an object. Uh, so you, you sort of um, uh, produce an analog of the object in mental life as opposed to having a direct um, relation to the object in the environment. Uh, and so he goes through the, the different forms that anticipation, uh, experience, and memory take in this uh, sort of mode in, at this level. Uh, and then we'll see the third stage in, in, in the next reading, which will probably be next week. But the third stage is what he calls formal or reflexive use of the image. Um, um, but we'll, we'll get into what that means next time.
1: I thought this point in the first paragraph that you read um, uh, about these images that seem that, I guess, saturate the subject and seem insurmountable and require the invention of a new level um, you know, I think that one way, in addition to the religion example that he gave earlier, another way that you can think of this purely c- cyclical reproduction of images without invention is something like uh, like drama in the sense that Freud discusses it in um, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, something that uh, engenders this compulsive uh, pathological repetition and that requires an invention of of some kind um through analysis to uh i guess bind i think the way he talks about it in that essay is, or that book um is binding the traumatic energy so that it's no longer just free energy running around the psychic system uh but that may be a kind of invention that leads to a new um a new level that reorganizes the this uh previously purely cyclical organization
0: yeah that's um uh, a good uh connection to make um yeah so he he has talked in in volume two or uh sorry no in volume one of individuation he talks uh, a little bit about um pathology mental pathology uh so he talks about um, um like i guess split personality um um uh and um yeah so there's um um a, a bit of uh um, discussion of, of patho- mental pathology uh, in volume one of Individuation, um, but here he's giving um, not so much an account of pathology, but um, one kind of pathology, uh, which would be to uh, be unable to pass to a higher level. So you, you, you go through the cycle of um, uh, anticipation uh, to experience to memory and you, you sort of progressively tie your images together and you, you go through all the structuring, but you can't go through that invention step and move on to the next level. Um, uh, and yeah, so we can think of this as, you know, like uh, an instance of um, trauma uh, where people are sort of um, stuck with a, a certain image. Um, they can't uh, get away from this image and that image might sort of... Um, undergo this connection to all the rest of their mental life that you might like avoid all all kinds of situations because they remind you of the thing that you're, um, uh, traumatized by, um, you know, it it might sort of go through this whole process of, uh, structuring your mental life, but in this pathological sense, because you can't actually get beyond that image. Um, so I think that's, uh, yeah, similar type of phenomenon as the one that Freud is talking about. Um, um, but uh yeah it'd be interesting to see and, and simon' talks about Freud uh, in a few places, but it'd be interesting to look at like uh what a simondon style um therapy would look like um you know trying to help subjects to um be able to invent a new um relation to the images of in their life and to uh uh you know invent a new um a new yeah a new form of uh a new way of living i guess
1: it probably look like shop class or something like building radios.
0: Yes. I think he would see, uh, yeah, he, he talks in some places about, um, um, you know, the, the value of, um, uh, appreciating, um, obsolete technology. Uh, so not just sort of discarding something because it's no longer, um, you know, the, the sort of cutting edge, uh, or the latest model of iPhone or whatever. Um, but, uh, uh yeah so taking these sort of obsolete technologies and you know really grasping how they work and repairing them and uh you know keeping them working and so on he sees this as like a a sort of valuable way of uh uh relating to technical objects so yeah i think he his, his sort of version of therapy might yeah consist in uh sort of um uh repairing you know old radios and grasping their technical essence by by doing that and then having this uh better relationship with your environment by virtue of doing that. I
2: was kind of interested by the, the first paragraph of this section. And um, he says in the small previous paragraph, he talks about analogical organization of symbols. And, um, and he goes, well, he, the, the, that first paragraph is quite kind of philosophical kind of analysis that then leads into the following uh, sub levels about primary level and secondary level. Um, he says, he says, he says, a, um, he says that such a general hypothesis of Genesis image might lead to a dialectical interpretation. It seems to be saying that there might be the route we can go down, but then it's, but it seems to imply that it probably isn't the route you should go down. So the um, so he says it's a posteriori it's uh, characteristic of a, a synthesis, so it's something kind of uh, affirmed through the. This, this analysis, this apostoriae um, image. And it, the other thing he talks about is the dialectic about the relationship between organism and milieu, which I guess something was previous section. Um, so I'd like to get clear on the kind of organism and the milieu, this kind of relationship. That, then he he goes into a kind of uh, uh, analysis of that, which leads to that the next, three, well, we've only read two, but the next three sections
0: yeah the uh the concept of dialectics is an interesting one in in Simondon because uh we've, we've talked about this a few times in in volume one um, he on certain occasions he is somewhat disparaging about dialectics or he he sort of uh, wants to differentiate himself from what he thinks of as dialectics and he says you know what i'm doing is not dialectical um, uh or he says you know this you know like in this context here he he gives a sort of Limited account of what dialectics might consist in, so he says, you know, this aspect of reality might be sort of uh, what dialectics is grasping or or what dia- dialectics is uh, based on. Um, but then there are other passages where he actually describes his own uh, work as dialectical, um, uh, or where he takes on this term dialectics as as you know um, suitable for his own work. Uh, so. Yeah, he seems to have a sort of ambivalent relationship to the concept of dialectics. Uh, and it's also notable here that he um, he takes on, and, and he does this in other places as well, he he conceives of dialectics in terms of the thesis-antithesis-synthesis schema, which um, is not really how Hegel presents it, um, if, we're, if we're taking Hegel as like the exemplar of dialectical thought. Um, so this sort of schema is, uh, I mean... Uh, Hegel would see this as as being an overly sort of formalistic um, uh, approach to dialectics because you're you're sort of presupposing this set of categories and then uh, kind of imposing them on um, on the world um, and and so Hegel doesn't conceive of his own project as doing something like that of you know finding a thesis antithesis synthesis structure in everything um, uh, and and so Simoneau is sort of working with this um, kind of tra- traditional interpretation of hegel that maybe doesn't work that well as a hegel interpretation um and uh but he's he's saying here that um yeah we there's a certain respect in which the uh structure of ideas or the structure the the genesis of images that he's presented uh might sort of remind you of a dialectical process or it has certain similarities with um this dialectical process conceived as a um a progression from thesis to synthesis, to antithesis, to synthesis. Um, but he, um, he then says, you know, even though there we ha- there is this sort of partial resemblance or something like that, it's, it's only partial. Um, and he thinks that a deeper understanding of the relationship between organism and milieu, uh, which is what he's going to go into in the next uh, sort of tripartite schema that, I, that we um, read the first two parts of, um, this deeper understanding of that relationship will sort of go beyond dialectics and so dialectics is um a kind of superficial um account of development for simondon or in this bit of simondon at least um he sees this dialectical progression from thesis to antithesis to synthesis as being a, a kind of superficial grasp of only one aspect of this uh organism milieu relationship and uh um yeah, when we have a better grasp of the different levels at which this relationship occurs, then we sort of get beyond dialectics. So, um, yeah, that's what we'll, we'll have to um, see more about next time because we're just about out of time. But yeah, so we, we've gone through the first two levels of this schema and then we'll see the third one next time. Okay, yeah, so we're um, pretty much at two hours. So um, uh, let's stop here for today. So we'll pick up from page uh, 22. 2, I believe, is where we stopped. Uh, Yes, the bottom of 22. Uh, So, yeah, so thanks, everyone, for coming out. Um, Hopefully, we can get uh, a few other people to read next time. But, yeah, no pressure if you, you know, don't have a mic or for whatever reason you don't want to read. But it would be nice to have uh, some variety of voices uh, so that uh, it's not just me talking uh, all the time. Um, uh, So, yeah, uh, I encourage you to join in if you feel comfortable. Thanks. See you next week.